Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate and Ryan discuss what was happening in the American rave scene in the 1990s, a period when the scene experienced enormous growth but still stayed underground. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Or should I say techno roll? I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and that means I'm here with my co-host, Ryan Harkness, to continue our discussion of Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. Today, we're on the chapter he titles, America, the Rave, U.S. Rave Culture, 1990 to 1997. This is getting into your era, right, Ryan? Yeah. Finally, we come over to this side of the Atlantic and discuss the North American rave scene you know, or or the American rave scene, because who cares about Canada, even though things were popping off in Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver. But, uh, you know, th- things are pretty condensed in this chapter already. Uh, Reynolds tries to cram like 20 into 20 pages what Michelangelo Matos needed 600 pages for in, in his book, The Underground is Massive, which is to me like the main rave USA book. And, yeah. uh, and we'll I mean, yeah. And then there's there's even like a book out there that's just devoted to the New York club scene or multiple books. Uh, so like you can go as deep as you want into this. This this one here spends about 20 pages kind of touching on on everything. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting skim for sure. I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, everything up to 1997. So we will make some references to things that have happened since then. Hopefully that's not a spoiler to anybody. But um I want to keep the discussion basically focused to what Reynolds is working with, which is just his knowledge of what is going to happen up through 1997 when electronic dance music had not yet conquered America. That doesn't happen until, what would you say, 2010, 2015, 2005? Yeah, I'm not sure when the whole uh, tipping point is considered to happen. Like, I think, you know, once Ultra in Miami is going sometime around 2006, the the seeds are definitely planted and it grows and grows and grows. But I don't think it's until, uh, you know, Rihanna does that uh, does that work with uh, Calvin Harris that it really kind of takes off and 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 people in in the quote unquote real music industry start paying attention to it. That's the whole thing. There's an. The rave scene is is mad. The underground is massive. The entire time, all through like the '90s and the 2000s, you can you can go into like multiple states and there'll be parties with 10,000 people there. Yet at the same time, there's no way for uh, any of these music agencies or anybody you know kind of connected to the industry to be able to suck up all the money, so they don't consider it a real thing that's going on. That's basically the difference between, you know, before and after is before it was just not commercialized, but it was underground and it was happening and it was happening everywhere. 
it's not for lack of trying. The major labels, they'd already signed up a ton of the Chicago house producers, Jesse Saunders, um, Frankie Knuckles, even had a major label deal for a while. Rick Rubin in this period we're talking about makes a run with his American records at trying to popularize um, dance music, which didn't even have a catchy name. They hadn't tried electronica yet. Uh, we're years away from coming up with electronic, electronic dance music or EDM as it eventually became famous. So they're calling it rave music. They're calling it acid house. They're calling it different things. But yeah, like you say, it's probably not till I don't know, maybe Daft Punk at Coachella in 2005 that that really um, becomes a, a major thing. But there are steps. There's waves. It's kind of like the alternative punk revolution. Each iteration of punk bands got a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger, and and eventually Nirvana, you know, blows the whole thing open. But with rave, there's not even that feeling of. You know, there's not like a Sex Pistols or a Bad Brains of rave. Like, here was the act that had it all that shoulda, coulda, woulda, except they imploded because of bad management or, you know, mental problems on the part of the singer or whatever. There's none of that. It's just people trying, people failing, and not ever putting anything together that looked like a woulda, coulda, shoulda. Although Big Beat, which we'll get to, and Trip Hop do kind of lay the groundwork and Moby. Moby gets one mention, and I got to say, in fairness to Reynolds, Vancouver does get one mention, so Canada is not totally ignored. The word Vancouver does appear in this chapter. So, oh, but is it Vancouver, Washington? No, I, well, he doesn't specify. In, in fairness, <laughs> he doesn't specify. So, all right, but let's get to the chapter. It starts out with one of Reynolds' "I was there" bits of reporting, um, his you know classic new journalist rockist style. He went to the even further rave uh, in in rural Wisconsin. In May 1996, about 3,000 kids are out in the mud. He calls it a microcosm of American rave culture, which he kind of has to because I guess it's probably one of the few that he took a sample of. So, and nothing, you know, and that's not a knock on him if, if it sounds like that. But he goes to the big party. And I think that the fundamental weakness of the American rave scene, which he gets to, is that there's no American. Jungle. It's funny for the country that invented house, that invented techno, that invented garage. Um, in the '90s, once it goes to England and comes back as rave, because those forms were all club or party musics. They weren't rave musics until they go to England, and Ibiza, I guess, is, is a big key influence there. But America doesn't create a jungle. It doesn't create a gabba. It doesn't create a trance. There's not a new style of electronic stance music coming out of America in the 90s. So I can kind of see why he only puts a chapter in it. Musically, it just wasn't that important, although there are um, some important producers. But back to the party in Wisconsin. It's a bunch of druggy teens, barely out of their tweens, in a mud hole. Listen to all kinds of stuff. They're listening to Gabba. They're listening to Ambient. I mean, you got a wide variety of DJs and different styles. Makes sense of this all. Yeah, I mean, the big difference between U.S. rave at this time and a lot of the other scenes like, say, London or England in general is is the do-it-yourself ethos of the average ravers in every city because there, there weren't a lot of well-heeled investors lining up to get involved. So it was up to a bunch of sketchy youths to put everything together, and that led to a much more technical vibe like uh, the, the, the free – techno parties that would go on in the UK uh, thrown by all of the travelers and stuff like that. So there was more of that vibe at most parties than you what you get elsewhere. Uh, these outdoor rave gatherings, I used to call them dirt raves because you had to be ready to rough it. Like be prepared for no toilets, be prepared for the parking lot to turn into a mud pit that literally swallows cars and be prepared for out of their mind kids howling at the moon and definitely be prepared for cops or sometimes thugs to, to shake you down. It was, it was, it was, it was, completely off the reservation it was completely sometimes it was uh, on the reservation yeah no that's very true reservations were one of those perfect spots for these parties to happen but it was just yeah it was it was a it was a no law zone it was an outlaw zone and that was that was the angle that was played into a lot. It was very counterculture. It was very much, you know, the UK scene has that very much like, oh, it was the Thatcher years and people hated their lives. In, in the Midwest, it was more of there. There is kind of that mainstream uh, vision of what life can be and the jocks and the preps and the everybody. And then you had all the outcasts and the outcasts were the ones that kind of 
uh, gravitated to rave and made it this 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 whole counterculture thing. Some of the outcasts, and we'll talk about some of the alternative countercultures that sort of slowed uh, raves roll down. But first, let's hear a little bit from Midwest DJ and producer Woody McBride. This is the Birdman from 1996. Tell us why you picked this one. I wouldn't say it's representative of of the sound coming out of the Midwest because it's definitely a weird, quirky, clunky kind of kind of vibe. But it's exactly the kind of weird stuff that the kids out in the Midwest will eat up. So it shows you that these people are looking for for weird, kind of funky, mind bending stuff. Weird music for weird people. This is Woody McBride's "The Birdman" from was Woody McBride's The Birdman. And Woody was at the even further show that Simon attended there in 1996. And, you know, Simon gives some big shout outs. He, he mentions the fact that it's got that crusty punk ambiance that he's used to at illegal raves in England, even though these are commercial and legal events. Uh, the relationship eh, with legal, 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 sort of legal, but but, you know, it's it's always contingent and there's plenty of police harassment. And one thing he sort of bemoans is that. The media and the police and state legislatures did everything they could to help rave out. They tried to ban it. They wrote hysterical headlines. They raided it. There was a, a rave in Milwaukee in 1992, the Grave Rave, where they arrested everybody in the audience for some charge of like conspiring to aid and abet the illegal sale of alcohol, even though they found like you know one six pack in this place. They arrest multiple hundreds of kids. Ultimately, have to drop the charges when about half of them plead not. Not guilty. So, you know, the forces of repression are doing everything they can to hype this scene up, but it still doesn't quite uh, kick over the top. And he gets into the, some of the reasons, but he also gives it, you know, he gives it, he gives the American shout outs for the the zeal of the promoters that these people are definitely not in it for the money. There's there's very little money to be made in some place like rural Wisconsin doing a rave. And the kids are really dedicated, willing to drive five to 15 hours, keeping up with these zines, knowing the DJs, learning the music. But yeah, the, the Midwest was an entire scene unto itself. So everybody in the Midwest, uh, all the flyers would go out to all the different regions and everybody would drive around to all the different parties. So it wasn't and this was so you had Chicago and Detroit kind of on the side for the really hardcore people. They're willing to drive in as well. But like that entire area, you had that that whole place to draw to draw from and everybody would converge at whatever party. And they were they didn't they were they didn't care. They'd drive 10 hours. And that's like in, in the Canadian. Canadian ethos because every single major Canadian city is basically five hours apart from the next and you had to be willing to drive that in order to get yourself a full rave experience. So Midwest people shared that ethos. Yeah, it's it's a lot like driving to Calgary. Like, you know, you drive 10 hours and you find yourself in a mud hole in rural Wisconsin. You're like, was this worth the drive? But apparently it was for a lot of these people. But here's the demerits of the scene. Lots. He calls it the debauched extremity of the poly drug use. So it's not just E. We're talking poly drug use. We've got LSD. We've got P PCP and ketamine, which are deliriant drugs or disassociative drugs. Sorry, not deliriant drugs. We've got GHB, which is a weird kind of steroid that was uh, kind of inexplicably popular in the 90s as a recreational drug. And you've also got this nonsense stuff like smart drinks. And for a while, they were there. You know, uh, we'll we'll talk about San Francisco in a minute. But people were like lining up to take huffs of pure oxygen and things like that. They were also taking nitrous oxide out of cans. So, you know, it's it's just this crazy over the top drug abuse scene. He also gives us a knock for the tender age of the participants um, and the precarious relationship with law enforcement. And we'll talk about that more when we cover the underground is massive because. America gets super, super duper repressive after the war on terror starts. Well, just like it did for everything else, it, it cracks down on rave in a big way. 
Yeah, ironically, I'd say, I'd say that 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 sixty that, that very young edge that the parties have was kind of one of one of the things that Rave had in its back pocket to continually uh, you know turn over and and bring new people in because you know America you can't drink before you're 21. So what are what is everybody to do in those seven years between when you kind of like wake up from just eating your boogers and and you're kind of looking for something to do? So these parties were stacked with people like you know. Some people under the age of like 12, but most of it's, you know, like 14 year olds, 15 year olds, 16 year olds. I used to say, like, if it's not all ages, all night, it's not a rave. And, uh, you know, it made sense to me when I was 19 and I started throwing parties, but it horrifies me now. But that was kind of the idea back in the days. If it was a rave, it was all ages. And there was going to be like a bunch of 15 year olds there, probably dating 18 year olds, probably doing getting into all this poly drug stuff if they don't have any education to tell them what the real stuff is and isn't because they've just been raised on that say no to drugs crap. So. And there's no way to know what you're getting when you're buying it from from an authorized an unauthorized illegal dealer. So you, know, you didn't have to worry about fentanyl back then, but but it could be adulterated with anything else. And also methamphetamine was was ever present. We'll talk about that a little bit more. I thought the lineup of DJs at this event was pretty interesting because you had everything from like Boo Williams, who's a second generation Chicago house producer, just doing what Reynolds calls voluptuous, curvaceous house music. You've got Scott Hardkiss from San Francisco doing feathery, floaty softcore and, and wowing the crowd with his remix of Elton John's Rocket Man. You it's a garbage mixed. remix, by the way. <laughs> it's absolutely garbage. You put you included it in the in in the document and I was like, God, I hope we're not playing Rocket Man because it is I mean the, the bass doesn't match with the with the key of the song and it's just like so poorly put together. It is an atrocity. My kid was appalled in the car. He was he was uh just outraged at what a bad sloppy remix it was. But it, it went over, you know, like a charm at the event. You've also got Mixmaster Morris uh, dropping some drum and bass and trying to fight the GABA trend that's that's coming over there. Um, Test's song Overdrive was a big GABA hit at this one. Woody McBride that we mentioned, a.k.a. DJ ASP from Minnesota, he was doing his hard acid set. Brooklyn's Frankly Bo Frankie Bones was there doing four to the floor hard acid. Uh, Phantom 45 um, was doing something I typed as jungle. Phantom 45 was jungle. Yeah. Yeah, as jungle. I don't know. I the, the autocorrect thing when I turn my text editor off and turn it back on, it comes back at me with like complete gibberish. So I have no idea what tearing hardship meant, but that's what <laughs> that's what uh, it translated what I typed. But anyway, so you know, it's a wide and, variety. And of Daft stuff. Punk, they mentioned the fact that Daft Punk when it did one of their first sets there because uh, Thomas Bangalter was was kind of floating around the U.S. rave scene, getting into Filter House, which is one of those little subgenres that didn't, you know, the, the history doesn't give America credit for it because they weren't the ones producing these tracks. But Filter House became like a big sound everywhere, and uh, Daft Punk has that Filter House that turned into French Touch. That Filter House is kind of a prelude to that and that was a big sound that was being pumped out because it was that that it was a perfect mix between kind of a sexy house and and four to the floor techno so that was something that was really big in the in the early 90s and it was it was my peak for house i used to play filter house for a little bit back when it was still being made in in mass Good to know. And Daft Punk, of course, is going to go on to be one of the acts that breaks uh, EDM in the States in a big way. And your point about having the youth on your side, that is, I mean, that's the children are our future, as Whitney tried to tell us. And, you know, it's a great way to ensure your scene is going to have some staying power because people tend to lock in on the music that they were into when they were 15 and stick with it for the rest of their lives. So I think that was a big factor um, in the long term success of it. And then he he. From there, he you know he talks about this one particular scene. He talks about some of the history of the even further raves that they started in the early '90s. Um, I think the first one was in '94, and that it was a combination of David J. Prince of, Re of the Reactor Rave Zine, uh, Communicate Records of Minneapolis, the Drop Base Network, which is kind of a promoter um, affiliate that also that did that did the whole thing. These are the guys who put on the Grave Rave in Milwaukee in 1992 that resulted in the mass arrest. 
from there, he goes back kind of into a history of rave in the States. And we've already talked about Detroit and Chicago and New York, New Jersey. So he's not going to go into there, but he dives a little bit more into Dallas and Austin, which um, I was fascinated with because that was where I was at the time. And I, I actually did have a brush at the Start Club when I was checking out colleges um, in, I think, late 84, early 85. And yeah, it was legal. You could buy it at the counter. When I was there, it was about to become illegal. So they were literally giving it away. Ecstasy, right? Yeah. yeah, ecstasy. Real ecstasy, which I never took anything like that again when I, when I tried later on in the 90s. What I was taking was not the same stuff as the pure ecstasy that you could get at the Start Club. And the soundtrack was what he calls proto-techno uh, electronic dance music, the kind of stuff that they were playing in Detroit before they started making their own records, plus a lot of wax tracks, industrial type stuff, the early ministry, the pop ministry, skinny puppy, stuff like that, plus things like the Smiths, indie pop. Also, my recollection is a lot of New Order and Human League and sort of British synth pop was being played uh, in there as well. So it didn't really register as like some new musical revolution to me at the time. It seemed like synth pop was the predominant thing. And then the other stuff, when I first heard House and Techno, it just registered as some kind of instrumental electronic music that it didn't even occur to me to ask who's making this, where is it coming from? It was just this sort of anonymous machine sound coming out of the speakers in the clubs. And I, he does give credit where credit is due because he blames the SMU frat boys for getting ecstasy banned um, because, you know, the same meathead thing. They would t get 20 tablets and they would take them all at once. You had some kids that blinded themselves temporarily with X. I knew people who did X so much after it was illegal in the Dallas area that they forgot their childhood. So, you know, it, it, it a hard partying scene there in Dallas. And then once it was banned, it went underground and it went away. Like yuppies had been sort of dabbling in it when it was legal and having these sort of vibe parties. They weren't doing the, the trance dance stuff, although that was – he does give Dallas and Austin credit for pioneering that. That aspect of rave culture was pioneered here in Texas. Um, now we switch to New York, which is the first sort of post-UK um, rave scene that hits in the US. And that's, you know, that's the weird thing. It, it like is invented in the US. It's taken to Ibiza. It's brought to England. It's modified into this new form, the rave. But let's hear the kind of stuff they were making in New York and New Jersey before, like sort of the old school. The main guy we're going to be talking about here is Frankie Bones. And he and Lenny D uh, were making tracks like this one, Just As Long As I Got You. Tell us why you picked it. This is from 1989. I just thought it was a, a perfect example of, of seeing what the New York producers were doing as far as making music for, for the emerging UK scene because they kind of realized something was going on over there. Frankie Bones gets brought over because of his Bone Breaks records. And, uh, and then he sees everything there and realizes, okay, this is the scene we should be writing for. So they start pumping out you know, stuff that's right up on par with what's coming out in Europe and Belgium and everywhere else. Yeah, and of course Joey Beltram comes out of that same scene that Reynolds has talked about throughout this book, and and we've even talked about Frankie Bones' conversion experience before. I think in the Brewster and Broughton book when he played uh, the Energy Rave in the UK, and ended up playing to twenty five thousand people at dawn, and maybe having his first ecstasy experience at the same time. So he comes back as this evangelist wanting to bring rave culture to New York, and. Um, it's not quite a taking Coles the Newcastle thing because even though you know New York was the home of the Paradise Garage and then later Tony Humphreys takes it to New Jersey, um, uh, I didn't cue, did I? I just talked. No, about no, it. yeah, you just kept, you got so excited, you just kept talking. Yeah, my bad, my bad. Thank you, Steph. So let's hear Frankie Bones and Lenny D just as long as I got you.
And that was Frankie Bones and Lenny D, just as long as I got you, which is the Warehouse Rave remix. So yeah, so sorry for getting so excited, but uh, uh, this phenomenon of of American producers who've you know coming from the place where we invented house, garage, and techno, and then going to England, seeing how it's done in a different way to much bigger popular success. Like you know, this had this gravitational pull that pulled the. Detroit producers and DJs to England and, and Europe, the Chicago producers and DJs. Uh, I was just about to mention Tony Humphreys, who kind of picked up the torch from Larry Levon at, at, and carried on the garage style, even though he moved over to Jersey. But Frankie Bones comes back and starts these sort of, I, I like these, like the training wheel aspect of it. Like at these early handful of people in a part in a room with a strobe light, which was how they did it, they would show film of people partying in, at English rave. So it was like a sort of training film strip that they would do so you'd know how to behave at a rave. And um, Frankie's team, he's got Adam X, his brother, Adam X's girlfriend, Heather Hart, who becomes a DJ in her own right, DJ Jimmy, Jimmy Crash, uh, and this guy Dennis the Menace, who's a promoter, and Reynolds calls him a whiz kid, which I'm not sure exactly what that means. But they form sort of the Storm Rave Collective and start doing bigger and bigger parties it goes from a room with a strobe light to warehouses and beaches these illegal things by uh, 92 they're doing a big all-nighter every month and becoming quasi-legal um yeah it's funny because frankie uh credits more the la rave scene with inspiring him to get the storm raves up off the ground then the uk one showed him that the scene was there and the music was right and you could create this thing and then he started playing out in la and he saw how they were just going into warehouses and breaking into the warehouses and, and, and doing events in there. And he was like, well, if these guys can do can pull this off, then we can pull this off. And he grew up basically his dad worked for the uh, for the trains, uh, for the for the transit system. And he lived like right next to a, like a transit depot at the end of his street. So he would just go up onto the tracks and explore and they'd find all of these perfect places. There was a brickyard uh, just a couple kilometer kilometers away from him in Brooklyn where they would basically set up and, and have some of their best storm raves. And it was just, you know, something that they they realized, OK, you know, take take this element of this and this element of that. They they took a lot of credit or they they gave a lot of credit to the to the early hip-hop days of how uh renegade hip-hop parties would go on at the parks and they would tap into light posts to steal the electricity so they they would go in, ahead and try to do that too and then they then they'd be screwed when 6 30 in the morning comes around and the light switch turns off and the power goes out and the music <laughs> stops yeah you can't you can't party all all uh on into the day when the lights go off automatically at dawn and he talks about the musical mix here and at this point when storms clicking in 92 this is the year that rave is really big in england dominating the charts massive legal raves but totally underground but that same mix of uk breakbeat hardcore uh is a big part of it the belgian what he calls the belgian bombast so sort of the proto gavis stuff and some of the full-on Gabba stuff. And also the Detroit Second Wave, Underground Resistance, gets a, a shout-out by, by name. And I thought it was also interesting that the Storm Collective, that they combine promoting events. There are multiple DJs in the collective. They do retail. They've got a clothes store and a record store, and they do record production. So you've got you know not just Lenny D, but also Mundo Musique, Tommy Musto, T Ralphie D, Joey Beltram that we mentioned, Damon Wilde. Um, you know, I believe Joey Beltram was actually uh, Frankie Bones's roommate at one point. So it was like this is like an interconnected scene of, of all the movers and shakers, all that kind of. And Omar Santana was also in the mix as well, who's another hardcore pioneer, uh, doing a lot of the production in the background and stuff like that. So you know, you scratch dig on this and you see who all these guys are, and it's just uh, a who's who of of people who would then go on to dominate the scene for the next 10, 15 years. Yeah, it's like reading about like uh, the formation of the Clash and the Sex Pistols, where they all all the people that end up in the great punk bands are all auditioning for each other's bands for a period. So yeah, it's totally incestuous. You've got this little scene, all the big talented people that are going to go on to make big marks in it, all kind of know each other. And it's funny you you give the mention of them learning how to do the break-ins from LA because that's something that had been done in England. But by the time Frankie Bones went to England, they'd already been through that phase and gone legal and had these. And were having they, these they, they were they were festivals in a field by. By the time that Frankie was kind of out there and he was playing a lot of those big festivals. So I don't think he ended up in too many, too many warehouses, or if he did, it probably seemed just so foreign and different 
you know, uh, a big thing that they were saying is, you know, there was a uh, there was a, a really bad fire in a Latin club uh, in the in the late 80s that that killed like 70 plus people. And at that point, there was uh, fire inspectors out there shutting down things left and right. And uh, so one of the one of the elements that they felt was like really against them was the fact that, you know, uh, if you throw one of these parties and the cops even show up, they're going to shut it down out of hand because of that incident. So they had extra extra eyes on them, looking at them and extra reason to believe that, you know, you're not going to be able to get away with this. Not in America. Yeah. And several of those uh, dedicated police forces become anti-rave task forces as soon as they get wind that this is a popular thing. And of course, because they're a little bit successful, they immediately attract competition. One guy who becomes known as Lord Michael Caruso um, started putting on shows in Manhattan in 91. They were doing stuff in Brooklyn out in out in the, one of the Brooklyn's not really an outer borough. It's not Staten Island or, or way off in the Bronx or Queens, but it's it's still not Manhattan. But Michael Caruso, even though he's a bridge and tunnel guy from the suburbs, he takes it to Manhattan. He's working for Peter Gatchian. I'm not sure I'm saying that right, but Peter Gatchian. Gatchian. Yeah, Canadian, by the way. Oh, good. He was the top uh, club promoter uh, or a top club promoter in Manhattan. And he let Caruso do um, Adrenaline Nights Thursdays at the Palladium and Future Shock Fridays at the Limelight Club. And I thought it was interesting that apparently slam dancing was the most popular form of dancing to this. And it talks about even at the storm raves that the kids would tend to dance in sporadic bursts. They wouldn't be the whole crowd dancing all night the way they were in England. It would sort of have the hip-hop tradition of when people were busting a move, then a circle would form around them and watch. And some um, you know, kind of eccentric dances came out. But here in, in these shows in Manhattan, it was slam dancing. It was high-tempo stuff. A lot of the hardcore breakbeat and GABA stuff. Uh, Young Moby compared it to playing in a penitentiary. Uh, Moby, not exactly a tough guy, uh, despite his hardcore punk pretensions. Um, Caruso ends up getting immortalized in a Village Voice article in 1997 that calls, calls him the king of ecstasy. So <laughs> tells you where the scene and the whole New York scene takes on an odor. And we'll talk about that after a quick break to hear from our sponsors. I first heard about this scene from the movie Kids, um, uh, Harmony Katane's uh, screen was a screenwriter for that. And he, I think, put the most sort of ugly twist on it, made it seem like a really exploitative uh, scene, which it was in some ways. But there's a ton of this stuff. I remember reading the Village Voice article about Caruso. There was another like club kid who was involved in a murder, I think, that got a lot of attention. Yeah, they, they made a movie with Macaulay Culkin called Party Monster about it, and that was yep. my first exposure. And then there's that book, Clubland, by uh, Frank Owen, which is basically like a 300-page book that's just devoted largely to Caruso and Gation and uh, the, the limelight and, and, and basically the war against clubs that uh, Rudy Giuliani kind of kicked off to that shut down a lot of the nightlife. Yeah. And so, you know, there's kind of this unsavory tabloid edge to this. We also should talk about NASA, which was the Nocturnal Audio and Sensory Awakening Collective. They um, um, played at the shelter in Manhattan starting in late July of 1992. They were doing full-blown rave. Um, a guy who had toured with D-Light, Scotto uh, and DB, who was a U uh, British expat, um, were the masterminds of, of NASA. They focused kind of on breakbeat and piano-driven tunes, the, the same stuff that was big in, in Europe in 92. They lost money for the first six weeks. Again, this sounds just like some of the first, you know, uh, Oakenfield efforts to push rave in the UK. The first six weeks, they lose money. Suddenly, after six weeks, there's a line around the block. Um, Reynolds went there in the early 90s, was very excited to hear a lot of the proto-jungle that he'd been hearing on pirate radio in London. But they, even the, the main people on the scene, admit that the peak only lasted for like three or four months. That because of the poly drug use, because of the really young age of the crowds, and because fashion people kind of adopted the scene, they perfect the style that we know all through the 90s and into the 2000s as the rave style. It gets a vibe of being kind of fashion bullshit. And I know that, you know, as an indie punk rocker myself, we had already written off the synth pop haircut bands as something that was fun in the 80s. But I mean, frankly, my experiences of, of it was if you saw a synth pop band live, 
you were basically watching people stand still with stupid haircuts while they played a tape. And I saw Ministry Live even after they added guitars and drums and stole the butthole surfers crowd show and Al Jorgensen fell off the stage. Somebody takes his microphone and Jorgensen never stopped singing. So there, you know, there was this definite vibe of of this stuff is fake and cooked. And when you're competing with thrash metal and hip hop and hardcore punk and grunge and things like Fugazi that are coming through. There was just a lot of competition for the youth market in the 90s. And this scene to a lot of people seemed fake. It seemed New York. It seemed England. It seemed fashion, like, you know, just a fashion fad rather than, you know, when you had like the hardcore punk scene where you had people that have been involved in it by this point, you know, for 15 years already, it just kind of smacked as inauthentic. Is that unfair? I don't think so. You also got to look at the fact that it was a very druggy scene and it was more uh, places like NASA and uh, Limelight were were kind of infamous for 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 being druggy scenes. And uh, it would it would get dark. And it's like, do you want to take your friends out to a place where they might be given heroin? I don't you know, uh, that's a bridge too far for me. So there's a whole number of crews running around. And, and these these rave crews have a better track record of keeping their scenes together because there's a little bit of a you know what we'll talk about this more in a second there's more of a plur attitude towards the whole thing where everybody's looking out for each other and, and tell us uh, what plur means uh peace love unity and respect now there simon reynolds completely ignored the birth of plur in this book which was brought about by frankie bones and adam x uh, you know, it started as Plum, as the Peace, Love, Unity movement. Uh, and then someone, just some random person on the internet added the the the, the respect at the end uh, on a message board. And it just stuck with that. But it's, you know, it's a simple aspirational ideal that all ravers across the U.S. aspire to, or North America in general, even if they might mock it or roll their eyes. Everybody benefited from the idea of plur, whether they actively participated in it or not. It made it made rave rave. And it was like a rising tide that raised all cynical ships to a, to a certain point, you know, that it just the scenes can get really dark. And I think we cover that a bit later in this chapter. And it's usually the end of the story of most of the scenes is, oh, it turned dark. A couple of key people died or went mad. And then we move on to the next thing. But, uh, you know, <laughs> and then the new wave of suckers comes along and yeah. parties. But yeah, and we've we've. For whatever reason, I'm kind of loquacious today, so we're, we're a little behind time, but again, I have to rush through a couple of these scenes. So then he talks about the San Francisco scene, which was a very, very early 90s scene because, of course, being San Francisco in the early 90s, it gets all mixed in with what's going on in Silicon Valley and the proto-virtual reality, which was getting no end of hype in the media at the time, even though it really didn't amount to anything. Um, but the internet did, and you know, you had things like Mondo 2000, which was a, a, a cyber Zine that got involved in trying to promote some of these early raves. And again, it's also a bunch of British expats. Um, Genesis Porridge of Psychic TV uh, was one of the big ones. And in the San Francisco scene, they even misattributed him with bringing Acid House to England. Like th that's how big a figure he was in the scene. You know, and they were directly connected to people like Timothy Leary and Terrence McKenna, these cybernauts that had been heavily into uh, evangelizing LSD and STP and psychedelics in the 60s. They were still around in the early 90s and, you know, got all mixed up. So there's a scene in San Francisco that's um, – you know, doing raves or doing the Toontown parties, which was a big thing. Mark Haley and Diana Jacobs, who were Brit um, expats, doing that. And at one point in 1991, on New Year's Eve, that drew 8,000 people to one of their parties. But they were all mixed in with all this cyber bullshit and, um, you know, cyber drinks or smart drinks and the cyber mystic shtick and, and the whole thing. But it didn't stop the music. I mean, it was it was getting a bigger and bigger scene. Yes, there was a, there was a really cool kind of sound that kind of came out that I like to consider kind of the the logical progression of the Balearic sound, uh, which is just a mashup of kind of everything, but on a positive tip. So it's kind of like how uh, you know dance music went hardcore and then hardcore went jungle, and it's all just kind of a slide down into darkness. Uh, the sound in San Francisco, uh, it kind of it's it's techier than usual, and that that comes into why I picked the song that I picked for the San Fran to represent the 
San Francisco scene. It's techier than the usual sound of house, but there's still a lot of house sound in there and it free flows all the way back and forth. You'll have like some serious acid in the same kind of set where like a couple minutes later, you're just going to have these angelic voices just crooning to you and, and just some really tinkling light piano and, and some really kind of groovy tropical house vibes. And this is Jeep Girls, El Magnifico from 1996. This is from DJ Garth, a DJ Garth set that you said captures the spacey house sound of San Francisco. So yeah, Balearic tip, guys. This is Jeep Girls, El Magnifico. Also doing outdoor parties, the Moonstruck or the Full Moon outdoor parties um, were a big deal. The Wicked Party Collective uh, was pushing that. That was again more British expats, um, Alan McQueen and Trisha, uh, DJ Gino, DJ Garth, uh, a, a DJ named Marky Mark, not Mark Wahlberg uh, of the the Funky Bunch, which was rocketing to fame around the same time. Um, but they were sort of reacting against the Toontown raves and the copycats and trying to take it more outdoors and keep that. Uh, cosmonaut vibe. Anything yeah, the, uh, the 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 beach parties sound like they were were the best. Like the full moon parties that they would do regularly, it was all free or it would donation only. But of course, you know, uh, with a vibe like that and a uh, a tight knit community, they'd always end up with enough money uh, at the end of it. And uh, you know, they they took over the same beach where Burning Man began. So they just kind of were looking around at what maybe some of the psychedelic hippies and some of the Grateful Dead people were doing, and they just kind of uh, altered it and changed it and did their own thing and of course they were having the same kind of cat and mouse game with the police they print up fake permits and fake documents to say they were allowed to be in this park at this time because they were doing like a religious uh ceremony the guys from uh from uh hype tribe i think it was uh not hype tribe but anyways dj garth and his crew they used to they they got uh all these documents from uh, from a church uh, one of those weird crystally spiritual churches saying that they had to be out there at night to absorb the moon's energy uh, and it was a protected uh ritual and that used to get get them like basically left alone because as soon as as soon as the park rangers would show up for that, their eyes would just glaze over as soon as they start hearing about, you know, oh, we're, we're just out here, you know, like realigning our chakras, man. <laughs> that They had seen that enough to know how to deal with it. And then L.A. is the next big scene that explodes around the same time. You already referenced it, that they inspired the New York set to, to learn how to do illegal um, break in parties. Again, there's a mix of British expats. Um, that Steve Levy, uh, who was a DJ in Santa Monica, but he was a native Brit. He went home to the UK, saw the acid house thing going on, comes back with a stack of acid house, 12 inches and, you know, starts playing in the basement of a fish warehouse, um, where they've got elaborate steps to catch undercover cops in the elevator, because it's one of these things like allegedly if you strip or if you search people coming in that the undercover cops in LA will have to have a gun and have to tell you that they're an undercover cop. And so that was their thing. But nonetheless, they went legal by 1991. And, um, he, says that you know the LA scene was a little different because it was quote fashion conscious hedonism rooted in the desire for after hours dancing so basically it was LA scenesters who wanted to keep the party going after hours and that they'd already kind of like London with the boombox the sound systems and the reggae and rare groove scene that there was already an after hours scene before house hits LA that in the late 80s you already had parties a lot of hip hop and funk parties then they start mixing house in there uh, you also have some gay bars that are that are doing house early. And we should have mentioned that with San Francisco as well. The high energy scene and the and the you know San Francisco obviously one of the legendary great gay scenes. They had house DJs in the clubs early there in San Francisco as well. So 
and disco LA. stayed a lot more in vogue, like the disco house sound. And you you hear a lot of saxophone in a lot of the house there. That's a San Francisco staple as well. They've uh, or uh, yeah, like just a California in general. Lots and lots of house and lots of sexy sounds that ended up getting kind of uh, integrated into the rave scene a lot more than you see in many other states. Yep, and and Doc Martin is another one of these guys. He starts out as a San Francisco DJ or, uh, at gay bars, and then moves to Flammable Liquid and playing house in LA. Then, as often as the case with LA, again, just like the punk scene, which starts in Hollywood but quickly migrates out to the suburbs, the rave scene migrates out to Orange County, and you've got these promotions. Ali Borsai and Steve Kool Aid have these promotions like Double Hit Mickey. Uh, Mr. Bubble, King Neptune's Underwater Wet Dream, um, a guy named Dave the Mad Hatter has the LSD parties, the love sex dance parties. And these guys really go over the top with popularizing this stuff. Some massive illegal parties. Um, they do one of the first big outdoor raves in the States, the Paw Paw Patch in June of 1991 in Riverside County. And um, they even have a radio station. Mars FM goes a full rave in May of 1991. And so things are really happening in L.A. But if you know anything about L.A. history, you know there's about to be a major event, which is the L.A. riots. And that happens. There's some deaths. Um, you have a really tragic thing where some kids – Nitrous oxide was a big part of the scene in LA. They accidentally what filled their whole car up with nitrous oxide and suffocated. So it's like basically climbed into a nitrous balloon and, and killed themselves. And so that, you know, triggers this flip to the dark side. And around the same time in San Francisco, Malachi O'Brien, one of the key DJs, he's paralyzed in a van wreck. Um, and in New York, ketamine floods the scene and 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 you know, uh, Frankie Bones has a collapse in 1993, late 1993, after what is called poly substance abuse. And it's so River Phoenix. I mean, these people were mixing ketamine, PCP, ecstasy, LSD, GPH. And it's like, it's a good thing he wasn't taking Benadryl, too, because that's what supposedly was the capper that killed River Phoenix at the Viper Room. You know, so this this polydrug scene comes back to bite everybody in the ass. And plus the L.A. riots happen, which ends sort of the interracial uh, alliances that had been springing up there. And promoters start snitching on each other in L.A. And um, the scene just gets really dark. There's a great club he mentions, the Sketch Pad, which is the perfect name for a sleazy dive, a dark and dingy lost space in Venice. It's where the raver zombies had their crash pad from 6 a.m. Sunday on into the early hours of Monday. Uh, originally a rent party for some girl who lived there and, and just turns into the sketch pad. So definition of sketchy. Yeah, each city had its uh, its own kind of perfect place. Toronto had comfort zone for years, which was the after party that you'd go to if you just wanted to like sit in a dark corner and just gurn your face off or whatever. It was, uh, yeah, I went there once and I was like, okay, never again. <laughs> yes, it's the kind of place best to take a look around and and move, keep on moving down the road. Um, and and some interesting musical stuff is going on, like uh, Lenny Dees. Um, the Brooklyn DJ and promoter that we talked about work with Frankie Bones. He's got his industrial strength label. The drop bass network in the Midwest starts pushing what it calls Midwest hardcore. DJ Ron Decore in Southern California, he had a bunch of fun tapes that I really enjoyed. That's more of kind of the hardcore breakbeat pushing into GABA type stuff. And as ever, when the scene goes dark and some of the music becomes more extreme, some of the other music retreats to house. So Tony Humphreys, uh, the legendary garage DJ from New Jersey, a lot of DJs become vocal acolytes of that style. So it's just like in England where when you get the hardcore scene going over the top, a lot of the first wave of DJs then really get serious about their house music. So you have yeah, the same thing. The lines get drawn, and at a certain point, you don't want to like sit out in a field or or sit out at a beach at like six in the morning, cold, being yelled at by police to move on or whatever else like that. And you just want to go to a club, but not a dark, dirty heroin club, just a nice, sexy, sophisticated club. And here's some some nice progressive house. Uh, so I get it. I get why the split kind of happened. And it's it's again, it's like, do you want to associate with the sketch pad or do you want to kind of take things above ground and try and save? 
read the soul of your scene. So a lot of the, 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 the guys running the LA scene took an active step backwards once the pressure came on from the police and, and just from the ravers self imploding very visibly in front of their eyes and just said, we don't want to keep doing this. We want to change it to something that's a little bit more under control. Yeah, you had things like the Grape Ape 3 at the Wild Rivers Water Park in Orange County, which was shut down at 3 a.m. after multiple fights, a van fire, people pulling guns on security, um, stuff like that. So people were pulling way back. Although at the same time, you know, a DJ Destructo put on a New Year's Eve rave in 1992 that drew 17,000 people. But no sooner does this stuff, you know, flirt with reaching critical mass but like in july of 92 mars fm switches from um rave music to alt rock because grunge has happened and that's become the scene and that was something the record companies knew how to deal with okay we've got songs we've got guitars we've got rock stars we know how to do this we're going to push this and uh you know grunge also had an organic scene that had been building for well over a decade kind of inherited the hardcore punk mantle so you know, a lot of competition in this era. But let's do our last song. And this is the one style out of this that I think has had the most long-term life. And this is uh, DJ IC Burr Gogo from 1996. This is the genre they call Florida Breaks. Tell us a little bit about why you picked this one. Uh, partially just to hear you go, brr, go, go. <laughs> but uh, other than that, yeah, like uh, Florida had like a, a very specific sound. They kind of they kind of took the the UK hardcore breakbeat sound and just slowed it down a bit, lightened it up so that it would work together with the Miami bass sound and the hip hop scene. And uh, so you ended up with this interesting slowed down, sun drenched Florida breakbeat sound that uh, to me is, is one of my favorite uh, sounds out there. And you got other guys, you know, in other areas, Crystal Method out of Las Vegas, uh, you know, kind of championed the sound a bit and took it technic uh, techno enough that it kind of it, it coined that whole big beat sound. But Florida Breaks is a very simple stripped down sound that uh, is distinctly Florida. And uh, I remember I remember around 95, just Florida breaks was something that you would see on a bunch of flyers all across America and up into Canada because it was it was a, a sound that was in demand because it was cool. And let's hear it. DJ IC. <laughs> go, go, <laughs> go, go. <laughs> DJ IC with Berbera Go Go. I'm going to spend the whole rest of the episode trying to make that sound and fail. <laughs> go Go. There you go. That's that's how it's done. And another thing I find funny or fascinating about that scene was that the Miami bass scene was a holdover of Electro, where Miami was one of the places where Electro survived longer than it did, Electro being the style of hip hop that Africa Bambata popularized with the song Planet Rock. They kind of got annihilated by Run DMC and the whole boom bap sound, and then and then later, Eric B and Rakim and Public Enemy really put a stake through its heart. But Two Live Crew was this LA electro group that went to Miami and found an audience for their stuff. So it's kind of a scene that time forgot that then goes on to mix with rave and create this Florida break scene which is, I think, kind of the jungle of America. It's an indigenous African-American style of dance music. Um, that's And it's also kind of related to ghetto tech, which maybe we'll talk about another time, which is a scene that starts happening in Detroit. The kids who didn't get invited to the techno parties on the uh, west on the east side west side of detroit the east side ghetto kids come up with ghetto tech which is kind of a cousin of florida breaks anyway then then he does a whole sub chapter on the florida scene which wasn't just the florida break style because there's Florida's a really weird state. It's not quite southern it wasn't ever really settled by the old school southern culture it's got huge waves of retirees, especially from the East Coast, tons of old uh, Jewish and Italian people from New York that retired there. Plus, you get the whole Latin American influx from Colombia and Peru and Brazil, the Caribbean with the Haitians and the Dominicans. 
Um, then you've got Orlando and Tampa that are these more white uh, regions and just a, a crazy mix, plus a big death metal scene in Orlando. So there's some some hardcore uh, rave kind of GABA type music that that is crossing over there. And they talk about that in Wisconsin, too, where some of the um, rave promoters would deliberately give things sort of a devil flair. Like one of the record labels was like 666. Um you know, to to get that whole Satan market. <laughs> Big oh, market yeah, I mean, the, the the drop base guys were literally Satanists. So the guys running the whole thing were were, were proudly proudly Satanists, and they 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 kind of sold it as a whole Satanist thing. And they would have uh, a whole bunch of you know pagan pagan events built around pagan dates and stuff. They they owned that completely. It was all part of the the shock of what they were trying to sell as a counterculture movement. And just the mention of it gets my dog Preston uh, in a righteous fury, ready to bark at those bad, bad, bad Satanists. So yeah, and you'd su- I'm kind of surprised that wasn't a bigger factor in San Francisco because you had the whole Anton LaVey scene there. But uh, those guys were more on the positive cyberdelic trip, I guess. But by the mid to late 90s, Reynolds is around to see, and he's still around, but he wrote the book in 97 or the section of the book. But Florida has become the biggest rival of Southern California for the biggest rave scenes, but still a lot of uh, ecstasy overdoses, great place to get overheated. Uh, Florida is and GHB deaths as well. Uh, Orlando's the city where the, the fire crews that were looking for overcrowded clubs rebranded themselves as the rave review task force, kind of a sneak preview of the kind of crap that the feds are going to come up with in the early two thousands. Um, and then he does sort of a roundup of where things are in the late nineties. So there's essentially an East coast scene that connects basically everywhere from Boston all the way through New York and Philly down to Baltimore and DC. Then you've got Florida. Then uh, you've got a big Southern scene with Texas and other Southern states where the kids are desperate for some entertainment. You've got uh, you El- knew that firsthand, right? I did indeed. I did indeed know that firsthand. Although in Austin, we were a little bit glutted, Austin and Dallas. But uh, yeah, big swaths of Texas where people were starved for stimulation. Then you had the L.A. scene and then San Francisco kind of expanded all the way up. And this is where Vancouver gets its big mention. From San Francisco to Vancouver, there's a Pacific Northwest scene that, that was uh, big at the time. And so – you know, we've laid the groundwork and he's talks about how the record industry is going to make another run at the American audience right around this time, 97, 98, 99, with both trip hop and uh, big beat, the um, fat boy slim kind of stuff that did, you know, that's the kind of stuff that penetrated my raucous radar. You could buy a CD. There was a whole album. They wrote about it in Spin and Rolling Stone, so I knew it was happening. You know, you didn't have to buy some weird rave magazine. You didn't have to flip through the 12 inches at the specialty dance record store um, that I was too homophobic to go to. You could go to the regular record store and buy all that stuff. So they And they rebranded it as Electronica, so we're going to make a run at that. And I felt like he kind of undersold Moby a little bit here. Oh, I mean, I guess uh, you know uh, he's covered quite a bit in the Underground is Massive by Michelangelo Matos, so we can kind of get into him a bit more. He he had his moments as far as important rave tracks released, and he was around to see a bunch of stuff. But you know, I'm just not sure exactly how much of a mover and shaker he was, other than just kind of being one of those musical pioneers. Like I think Frankie Bones definitely deserves to be discussed more when you're talking about you know the New York rave scene. And, uh, you know, all these guys in San Francisco as well. But Moby, Moby kind of kept to himself to a certain degree. I don't want to don't want to say too, too much without having going back with a fine tooth comb and, and, and not ignoring what he actually did. But, you know, uh, from my pretty extensive knowledge, like he he was very important musically. But as far as like the history goes, uh, he, he was he was you know, he was a player in the game and the game not was going on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Steph wants me to mention that I'm no longer homophobic. So it's all in the past. And and yeah, if I'm calling myself homophobic, you should assume that I'm, you know, alert or whatever. Um, but, you know, when I was younger and more insecure, the whole uh, dance club thing, you know, that was one thing that put me off a little bit. But anyway, that's our roundup of America the Rave. Simon Reynolds look at U.S. rave culture from 1990 to 1997. And next week we'll be back with what he calls the sounds of paranoia, trip hop, tricky, 
and pre-millennium tension. For Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox, and we'll be back with more Techno Roll next week. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will be back to discuss trip hop and how the 1990s Bristol sound emerged from a city not much known for innovative music until the 1980s. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.